Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Now, here's your host, Brian Moran. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Moran, and today our guest is Ray Bashio, Senior Vice President of USI Insurance Services, and someone who has spent the last 35 years in the healthcare insurance industry. So I'm pretty excited because I know that my knowledge of the healthcare insurance industry is average at best. So I plan to take plenty of notes uh, on this. And today, uh, Ray and I are going to be discussing the many of the opportunities and obstacles that business owners face when it comes to providing health insurance to their employees. With that, I want to welcome to the Small Business Edge podcast, Ray Bashio. Well, thank you, Brian, for that wonderful introduction. I look forward to having a robust discussion on uh, group insurance and how employers uh, can best uh, purchase their benefit programs. So, Ray, I've known you for a while, and you and I have had a lot of offline conversations about group insurance and how it's probably the second biggest expense for most business owners behind payroll, right? Generally speaking, yes. Yeah. And it's also probably the expense that they know the least amount about. Uh, again, as we go down market, that's almost universally true. Uh, as you go up market, that's generally true. How's that? Okay. All right. I'm, I can live with generally and, and universally. So, so let's define what is what is mid market in that range. Is it 100 employees where they start to get serious about the group insurance? Yeah, it's a great question because we do we all throw that term uh, mid market around. Your name of your company is small business, and I don't know that you define it in your uh, header. But uh, mid market, we typically talk about group employers. A uh, hundred to a thousand or so, right? Uh, depending on the the jurisdiction, uh, some of the characteristics of mid market groups um, uh, can change. For example, um, in New Jersey, uh, large group or mid market starts at fifty employees, and in New York, it's a hundred. It's awfully confusing to people; they don't understand why. Uh, states located, uh, you know, basically separated by a river have such materially different regulations for 75 uh, employer groups, for example. Right. And, you know, that's something to consider when you're talking about moving your business or expanding your business. I know that it's, it's a lot of times for businesses, they may not think of that initially, but as the one of the set, you know, two or three biggest biggest expenses that you're going to incur, certainly looking at the different policies and regulations in states is something to consider. Would you yeah, agree? also when you're when you're hiring key executives, for example, CFO, who maybe if you happen to be in that uh, that uh, delta between fifty and hundred employees. And they've been working in New York. They may not have any idea about the additional options of 75 person company may have in New Jersey that they were completely unaware of having worked in New York. It, it really is incredible. So so this this takes us to our first question, which is along these lines. So I guess the size matter when when buying and designing 
group benefit plans. Well, yeah, it really, really does. And, you know, again, the nature of group uh, varies considerably. You can have a group of two uh, or you can have a group of 20,000. And uh, for those aspiring actuaries out there, you may have heard of something called the law of large numbers. Right. So when you're talking about uh, indemnifying um, risk pools, uh, the bigger, the better. So in other words, uh, the smaller you are, the more risk you uh, present to an underwriting insurance company. And it's the reason small group rates, generally under 50 uh, employees, are significantly higher than, quote unquote, large group rates. As you go up market and you, you get into hundreds of employees and thousands of employees, most of those employers understand uh, you know, the component parts or they better understand the component parts of their spend. And they'll do things like they'll use tools like self-insurance and stop loss insurance, cost plus pricing, things like that, that allow them to drive their costs, their per unit costs down. And the smaller organizations simply uh, don't have the bandwidth uh, or really the risk tolerance uh, or spread of risk uh, to, to use these facilities to help keep their costs down. So, you know, you mentioned before how New York and New Jersey differ when you're talking about group and insurance rates. Is there, if, if I'm, a, and, and this is really kind of the beauty or a silver lining of the pandemic, that a lot of businesses can be anywhere, right? You know, you can just pick up and move. Not all businesses, not if you have bricks and mortar, but like as we start to move to like, let's say e-commerce businesses, I can move my business anywhere. Is there is there a huge difference like in in states in the Midwest and out west when it comes to um, under 50 employees? Like, will it get that uh, like if I buy my insurance in Wyoming or New Mexico versus New Jersey and I'm, let's say, 25 employees and we get that low? Will I see a difference going from state to state like that? Yeah, I know you love answers like it depends. But, um, (laughs) you know, we just sat through another um, presidential election and we we, we, most of us are familiar with kind of both sides of the aisle and their approach to the healthcare issue. Um, You know, the, 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 the Republicans tend to focus on tax credits and incentives and the the private sector to drive solutions. You know, the, the, the Dems, Democrats tend to focus on a more centralized approach um, on both sides, however, is the question of our current governance for insurance in our country. Uh, you may not know that there are 50 state insurance departments that each uh, regulate how insurance is purchased and regulated. And there are some common themes and the federal government from time to time provides guidance. Mm -hmm. But, for example, the Affordable Care Act did not uh, change that. The Affordable Care Act was um, designed to provide more access to insurance for more people. It did not do much to attempt to uh, weave together common Uh, commonly uh, um, assumed or commonly accepted principles of what works and what doesn't work uh, in terms of small employer 
health insurance. Okay. Um, in the in the day, some call it the good old days. Maybe it was good. Maybe it was bad. Uh, buying health insurance was a lot like buying life insurance is now. Um, underwriting carriers would ask all sorts of nosy questions mm-hmm. about your health condition, um, your lifestyle, and things like that, and they would literally underwrite the risk. And if they were a bunch of marathon athletes, you'd probably and young, you'd probably have a lower premium than if you were a group of uh, of guys like me, and you'd have a, a lot higher premium. Yeah. Uh, those days are over. Mm-hmm. Uh, community rating is the order of the day. Again, the cynic might say, again, that a populist move because um, what community rating did was um, uh, stop uh, medical underwriting. And so everyone's accepted into the pool. And when more people think they're getting something that's good for them, they tend to vote for the people who give it to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a little cynical there, but uh, you know that's where we are. We have community rating in most states under 50 uh, life uh, health insurance. Okay. So, you know, one option that I know for for small businesses under 50 employees is a PEO model, right? Professional employer organization. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and that as an option for smaller businesses? Yeah. And it's it's a good, uh, it's a good example because it does, um, it brings to light some of the regulatory issues I was talking about earlier that may not make sense to to certainly local employers here in the New York, New Jersey area. First of all, what is a PEO? A PEO is a professional employment organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the day, in the old day, they used to be called employee leasing companies. So literally uh, and legally, what an employer would do is uh, have their employees set up uh, as employees under a different tax ID number, that of the professional employment organization. So you're technically giving your employees to an organization who promises in return to provide you all the administration around most human resource functions, in addition to some other functions like workers' compensation and EPLI insurance and things like that. Um, they are highly effective uh, in, 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 in simplifying very complicated, often very complicated uh, procurement of insurance policies and and, and conducting uh, and administering payroll and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Generally, my opinion, for smaller employers, uh, you you headlined your question with under 50. Um, I think if there were, to be fair, if there were PEO representatives uh, on this uh, podcast, Mm -hmm. they would argue otherwise that they can be very effective into the hundreds of uh, employee groups. And again, I'd have to say um, it all depends. Right. Because there are some employers who who don't really want to have anything to do with the burden of providing benefits to their employees, and they do not have HR staff, depending on the nature of what it is they do. Uh, that just may be their culture. And if so, mm-hmm. if it's not important for them to have a kind of shared social contract with their employees and to have actively engaged employees, um, a PEO model may work. In mm-hmm. my opinion, uh, they generally work very well for very small companies. I would say under 20 or under 15 employees. Well, they are by na- their nature opaque. Mm-hmm. Um, they literally, they do on the other hand, and they will tell you if they were on this podcast, that they're able to use their scale to purchase uh, things like group health insurance and other types of insurance 
uh, at rates that a large group would get right. um, as they pool together all their individual small groups and pass those savings onto the smaller groups. And there's definitely some truth to that. Okay. And, and that's good to know. You know, it, it's all about options in the end for business owners. And, you know, one thing, and I just want to kind of take a little bit of a, a tangent here. What, I remember one conversation you and I had that, you know, when, when business owners would go to renew their insurance policies, you know, they would get three or four options, you know, the bronze, silver, gold, platinum, right? Something along those lines. And um, the tendency for most small business owners would be to go right to the bottom rate. Okay, this is the minimum amount of insurance that I could get, you know, the minimum payment and provide it to my employees. But if they did a little bit of homework and they looked at health insurance as an investment into their employees, because one of the biggest struggles most businesses really with less than 100 employees have is finding and retaining the best talent. And certainly the type of insurance and benefits that you offer could be attractive to your employees. But I remember you saying to me that the tendency is to buy just whatever's the cheapest one. But if you did a little bit of homework and you look just a level above, you got a lot more, a lot more benefits for not a lot more in terms of the rate. Is that still accurate? Yeah, it, it is kind of an oversimplification of the issue, but you're, you're, you're right. Um, you know, fo- it, it, depending on who's bringing these solutions to you, there tends to be a spreadsheet mentality around purchasing. Again, the smaller the organization, the less interesting the options are, the less uh, diverse the options are. Yeah. And I see a lot of employers, you know, tempted to just use a spreadsheet um, take a cursory look at the benefits provided and buy the lowest premium. Uh, but as we all know, you know, value is much more than premium um, because all, mo- almost all employers charge some contribution uh, to the employees uh, for them and their dependents to participate in the group program. So you can't just look at the absolute premiums because, you know, in, in the eyes of the, the ultimate buyer, meaning the member, they're going to look at a set of benefits and, and, and see what their out-of-pocket costs are, their deductibles are, their exposure. But equally or more important to them is what they're paying for it. Mm-hmm. So I could pay very little for a very poor set of benefits, and that may not be very valuable. Or I could pay very little for a very rich set of benefits that could be very valuable or vice versa, all four quadrants of the of the value, uh, the value chain there. So but I I think you're right. Um, I I do think uh, most employers do not spend enough time benchmarking against their peers or even having access to accurate and current benchmark information for them to know other than anecdotally. Um, what it really takes to, to, to be competitive um, in their benefit offer to continually attract and retain, you know, quality talent. All right. So now that begs the question, what you, your job, what you do is you advise companies, right, on their insurance, their group insurance, correct? I do. I help them uh, purchase uh, and manage benefit plans. Sometimes that includes buying insurance. Sometimes it includes less, buying less insurance. Okay. So 
how does a company choose an advisor? Like what, what are some of the, the things that they should be looking for? Because I think, you know, again, I've talked to you over the years and you've given me some incredibly good advice. And so I would imagine that a, a great advisor is worth their weight in gold, titanium, uh, Bitcoin, right? So, yeah, well, that's, so that's a, you know, I, I wouldn't have started my answer to this question with what I'm about to say, but since you just said that, I will. Um, it's been pretty, uh, again, I've been doing this 36 years now in the health insurance business, and most of that time was working for health insurance companies. Um, I've only been on the intermediary side for eight years, but armed with uh, all the technical um, information I need to help educate employers as to how um, their vendors profit off them. Mm -hmm. And my job is to, you know, limit those profits and, and get the, the, uh, the best pricing and best terms for my clients. But back to your, your question, um, I've been amazed in those eight years at how, how little or how much rope uh, insurance brokers, health insurance brokers slash consultants slash advisors get relative to their performance. And so when I ask a potential client, well, you know, when they say, what can you do for me? You know, I have to start with what, what's a, give me a baseline. I know what I can do. I have no idea what's been done for you. Um, ha, is your broker doing a good job? And, yeah. and if so, what are the metrics you use to, to give you confidence at night that you're getting your money's worth. Oh, and by the way, do you know you pay them? Because I'll still get answers from reasonably sized groups that don't think they pay their advisor. They tell me things like the insurance company pays the advisor. They get commissions, right? And obviously we know those commissions are built in their premium rates and they're mm -hmm. oftentimes negotiable. Um, and so employers have much more control over that than they think. But even with that, I see very little um, uh, around metrics associated with what my advisor does. Yeah. Right. The value yeah. needs to be the outcome over the cost, right? If the cost is more than the outcome, you got a shitty advisor. So pardon my French. <laughs> we believe me, we've heard those words before on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so what, why don't we, we should start with what I see that is not a good idea. Yeah. So when oftentimes someone will, you know, someone will call me or I'll get referred into an organization or I'll just call in an organization that I think could benefit from our services. And I'll ask them if they're interested in, in being engaged and in, in learning more. And I'll hear things like, um, OK, I'll let you quote. And I'll say, you know, so on the one hand, um, I'm discouraged by that because that's not a good idea mm -hmm. to have multiple uh, representatives of your organization out in the market, particularly in the insurance, in the health insurance market, where in New Jersey, for example, there's really only about five players mm -hmm. uh, out there. It's, it's not like the property and casualty markets where you might have 20 or 30 underwriting carriers bidding on a risk and not uncommon for certain brokers to represent certain carriers and, and have this kind of carving up of the market or multiple brokers working in the space. Um, and it's, it's probably a carryover from those purchasing um, 
behaviors. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, it's not a good idea for you to get multiple quotes at the same time from multiple brokers. You may think and hope that one broker will get a better deal than the other, but that's just not true. The insurance companies um, make sure that if there are multiple brokers in the market, they will all get the same quotes. And I will tell you, the carriers will not provide their best quote if they know there's more than one uh, person bidding on their company because they want to know who's in control. And without a lack of control, they're not going to give it their best shot. Okay. So that's one mistake I see all the time is that they'll ask multiple brokers to quote. Uh, I would also advise employers to um, stay away from potential advisors who lead with what I'll call shiny objects. They lead with a vendor. They lead with a product. They lead with a price. Um, They lead with technology. Um, What you want is somebody who can convince you, who can answer the question effectively. I completely understand um, your cost structure, how much you're paying. And I'm, I'm going to show you tangible resources and technical tools that give you the confidence that I know all the component parts of your spend and I have the talent, experience and resources to more effectively manage those costs to your benefit than your current advisor does. It's not easy. It's overwhelming. It can be intimidating. We typically work with one of two people in organizations, depending on the size. Smaller organizations, the ownership group may be involved. But your typical mid-market company um, has generally the human resource area uh, leading with the relationship because there are a lot of touches throughout the year on health plans, for example. And so it does become kind of a personal, more emotional um, connection with an HR person. Um, And depending on the organization, Uh, CFOs may or may not be actively involved. They're typically very involved in the renewal and in the budget, but not so much in the day-to-day operation. Um, I find uh, HR people generally can influence the the selection of a broker, um, but they generally do not do it without some sort of uh, endorsement or at least uh, review by either a CFO or um, an, an, an owner. So um, the different companies in different verticals do things differently, but typically the HR person runs, runs the process and usually the CFO will bless it. But we wanna make sure uh, both of those uh, stakeholders, decision makers um, understand their advisor needs to get into under the hood understand the component parts and not let insurance company premiums drive their final decision. So, I mean, this, first of all, I know I'm going to have to have you back on. All right. At least one more time, probably two more times this year, because this is, we're going down a rabbit hole right now in terms of the decision-making of the, the premium. And I'm, I'm stunned that a CFO wouldn't have more of a input on the second biggest cost to their company, that they would just delegate it to HR. And maybe that's to execute it. But here's something I know that's happening right now. And that is um, the state of mental health in, in our society and in the business economy 
is it's like a, a tsunami that's coming, that there's a mental health uh, pandemic, right? The anxiety, the stress, the depression that's been caused by uh, COVID. And, and, and the, the, one of the results is the number of women who have left the workforce in record numbers this last year. Um, we, we're now back to levels that are like circa 1988. That, that's how far the drop has been. So um, it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant the seed with you now because it is such a, a complex issue, especially when it comes to insurance, but the whole mental health behavior component of buying, and maybe you can just answer just one part of that. Um, because I remember 20 years ago buying insurance for my company when I had my own business. And it was almost like one-stop shopping. I got my vision, my dental, my medical, right? All wrapped up into one, right? And now everything's been kind of parceled out and everything's separate and it costs, you know, you know, this costs extra, that's extra. And so, Mental health is still part of, of of a health insurance, but is that something that they're going to that they're going to take one day and say we're going to make this a separate entity, a separate package? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. It's uh, and and with a, I'll add a little color, just given the nature and some of the um, the the, uh, the stigma associated with a lot of uh, these conditions, um, such a small percentage of people actually seek care who need help. Right. So there's enough people who seek care who need help, but there's probably right. Uh, right. more who have issues who don't for a lot of other reasons. But there has been a shift in, in the right direction over time. You may recall, not all that long ago, uh, more out of frustration um, and, and, and lack, of, again, the nature of this type of treatment is so custom right. when you're involving personalities and relationships with therapists and, and counselors and things like that, that, you know, a treatment that works for Brian works for Brian. Right. right. And it doesn't right. work for Ray or it might work for Ray. Or we don't know. But it's, it's it's not like diabetes where we have tried and true methodologies of treatment that work for 80 percent, 90 percent of the population. And as such, those are more easily managed, if for lack of a better term, um, and, and, and priced um, in an insurance contract. Right. But 20 years ago, we had significant limits on what they used to call mental nervous, behavioral health, substance abuse, benefits and contracts. And we've thankfully gotten out of that mm -hmm. to the point where there are no limits as there shouldn't be. Um, a, a, another contributing factor is the, um, and maybe it's because of the former, but a, a lot of these types of providers are not contracted with the big health plans. Part of that is financial. Part of that is they're generally smaller practices. Uh, they're not built for the bureaucracy of negotiating with big carnivore-like insurance companies who are going to, uh, you know, get you down to a fee that you can't pay your rent on and things like that. Right. So, right. I mean, those are two contributing factors. Um, but we do see a, a, at least a recognition 
that this is but quickly becoming a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you, you use the example, you cite a statistic about women in the workforce, and I, I think they're related issues. Um, I, I do, I've seen it myself um, that, uh, you know, some of the um, internal biases uh, that existed uh, 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 about, um, uh, let's just call it homemakers, whether it's a man or a woman, but people who needed to work from home, people who wanted to work remote, people who had childcare issues. Um, you know, some employers were more flexible than others, but yeah. there was always kind of, I've seen the nods and the winks about, you know, yeah, you know, Susie's got to work from home tomorrow. Yeah. Right. You know, and, 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 and with this built in assumption that they're somehow not doing their job or they're, 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 they're uh, not taking their job seriously and their, their, their children are more important, all the, all these fallacies that, that exist. And I think it's been exposed in the pandemic when um, by necessity, people have had to work from home and, and women are just not women, women and men, but majority are women who are, are the caregiver at home. And um, they're just had enough of it. And they're, they're, the, the biases have been exposed and they're just saying, you know what, it's not worth the strain I have trying to do both of these things at once when I'm not really being valued for it as much as I think I should. And I'm going to sit on the sidelines until they figure it out. That's, that's my opinion. So I I do think uh, things are moving in the right direction. We see more employers um, uh, adopting vendors to specialize in things like uh, stress management, meditation, yoga, things like that, uh, kind of on the the softer level, but also hiring, uh, you know, behavioral health management companies because your average insurance company or your average health advocate company isn't really prepared to deal with these really, really esoteric uh, conditions and, and treatment therapies. That is, you know, again, I do want to have you back on just, we're going to focus just on the whole mental behavior aspects of group insurance, because I think that, that for every, everything you just said, that it's going to have to employers who want to retain the best employees and who want to have the diversity and inclusion that they talk about, it's going to have to be a, a bigger investment into their their group insurance programs, right? And and the wellness programs and and whatnot that they offer to their employees. Um, you know, and I know that one of the concerns is is the cost to the company. You know, and that a low margin business is probably not going to be in a position to offer the same type of package that a company that operates at a relatively high margin, right? Unless they can figure out other cost saving programs and maybe through automation and a smaller workforce, they're able to invest more in a group uh, group health package. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of organizations looking at total wellness, which mm-hmm. goes far beyond your physical well-being. It includes financial wellness, you yeah. know, stress, things like that. Um, and the, the whole idea, whether you're a high margin or a low margin business, uh, you need productivity out of your workers. And let's face it, somebody who's worrying about uh, paying the rent or an unexpected debt or their water heater went, uh, they're not focused on doing whatever it is you need them to do. And to a much uh, more uh, serious, if they have serious mental issues, cognitive issues, things that are um, uh, um, materially impacting their ability to do their job, 
uh, obviously the productivity is even less. So identifying it and being aware of it is step one. I do see some, it starts with the larger employers, uh, more attention in, in that space. And, and that's a great point. And it might not even be them, but it could be somebody in their house so that they're a caregiver where they're really working two full-time jobs right now. And if there were, I love that you brought up the, the financial wellness because there has to be some sort of, I, I imagine that the majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck these days. Right. I mean, is that that's probably yeah. an accurate Again, assumption, depend, depending on the, the, the verticals we're talking about. Uh, but but you're right. You know, if your average blue collar worker, let's face it, with our minimum wage where it is, um, there's not a lot of room. Uh, right. So paycheck so, to yes. paycheck. And all of a sudden, my son, my daughter, my wife, my husband gets sick. And now all of a sudden I'm staring at a medical bill that is just it's completely throwing me off, which leads to the depression and anxiety and stress. And the, the, you know, decrease in productivity at work. It's like a snowball. All right. I want to, I want to get, I want to move back because we're kind of in the home stretch of, of this podcast. But like I said, I'm definitely going to have you back on because I want to talk about mental health and I want to talk about some of the other kind of uh, innovative ideas that employers and insurance companies can come up with to deal with the total wellness of their employees. So maybe that'll even be the theme. You know, one of the questions, I guess, has been the in-network benefits versus the out-of-network benefits, right? This, that's been a huge kind of um, uh, chasm for a lot of companies. And, and so a lot of times I hear from companies with 50 to 100 employees, you know, do I really need all of these out-of-network benefits in my, in my plan? Yeah, excellent, excellent question. Uh, another one of the um, uh, kind of uh, really unknown um, parts of the benefit summary that an employee may look at. Um, if you're like my wife, uh, you can't imagine uh, the idea of being limited to benefits for certain providers. Just she doesn't buy it. Thinks mm-hmm. everyone, you know, people in networks are probably worse providers. Age-old traditions that just aren't one hundred percent true. But but those feelings do exist out there, and there are people who cannot sleep at night without having some sort of out-of-network protection in the of unlikely but possible event that they need care that can only be provided or they want care provided by someone who is not happens to be contracted with one with their insurance company. So like a catastrophic situation, out of network benefits exist. Now Mm -hmm. let's, let's look at the reality of what out of network benefits are. Um, Out of network benefits can be illusory benefits um, because the, the, the key to examining your out of network benefit is to understand before you choose that plan, how the insurance company is going to determine what an allowable amount, and that's a key word, the allowable amount that is going to start your benefit or claim adjudication process. Mm -hmm. So typically, I don't want to get too technical here, but if you have out-of-network benefits, (laughs) they typically have higher deductibles and higher out-of-pocket costs. The idea is to drive people to network providers, which have the in-network benefits have lower deductibles and lower out-of-pocket maxes. On average, it works. 95% approximately of care is done in this country through providers contracted with a, a payer. Okay. Okay. 
So for that other 5%, it really is a quagmire because I'll give you a real life example. You could go to an out-of-network provider on purpose. You know you have a $5,000 deductible. You know you have a $15,000 out-of-pocket max. So you've gone in fully understanding you're going to have a bigger piece of the cost. What you didn't understand is what the starting point for those benefits are going to be. And here's Mm -hmm. the example. You have a a knee surgery with a at the hospital for special surgery where the hospital may be in network, but the the the, the surgeon is not. Yeah. He may charge twenty five thousand dollars for his services, and you believe you're you're cool. You're going to pay five thousand dollars out of your pocket uh, in terms of a deductible, and then your out of pocket max is fifteen. I'm covered because he charged twenty five. I'm going to get fifteen thousand dollars of benefit. I'm good, right? And I'm willing to to pay that much. The problem is the insurance company, when they start the adjudication process, is not going to take the $25,000 and start there. Mm -hmm. They're going to say, our contract says we're going to use some other allowable amount, and they're all over the place. There's usual and prevailing profiles. There's all sorts of indices that help determine what that should be. Nowadays, it's more common to have insurance companies or or, or third-party payers index their allowable amount to a percentage of Medicare. For example, they may say uh, our maximum allowable will be 150% of what Medicare would pay. So in this example, that might be $8,500, $10,000, in which case you can throw out your earlier calculations. And so the calculation starts at $10,000 and you've paid half of that in your deductible and the other half's coming right out of your pocket, right? Plus the doctor can now bill you the difference between the 10 and the 25 or 15,000. And now you need to be a negotiator with your doctor. And trust me, your average person does not want to negotiate with a surgeon. Uh, They just don't. Right. I, you know, I mean, and this begs the question, uh, and I do want to get to HSAs before, so don't let me forget that. Um, but, you know, I, I was reading where you go into a hospital, it, maybe it's an emergency situation, or you go into a hospital and your doctor is covered and the hospital's covered and everything is covered, but the anesthesiologist. And maybe they bring in an anesthesiologist who's out of network and, uh, you know, all of a sudden you get a bill where you said, OK, everything's covered. Everything's covered. Everything's in network. I'm all set. Well, the anesthesiologist on for that day wasn't covered. I, I think are there laws now that are being kind of pushed through for like protection of consumers when a situation like that arises? Yes, there are. Um, and that's a good thing. Uh, again, the problem, I think, with the legislation I've seen, I'll, I'll talk about New Jersey, is mm-hmm. it's really consumer protection. Right. Um, and to be fair, there are two parts to this. Right. So, you know, so far in this country, a doctor or a provider is allowed to say, I want no part of contracting with a huge for profit carnivore. Right. right. I want to run my own practice. So don't tell me I ha- how, how much I'm going to get paid. They have every right to do that, right? right? The protections I've seen protect the consumer from 
think in your example, which is very common with hospital-based ologists, mm-hmm. anesthesiologists, radiologists, pathologists, you may never actually see these human beings, but you get a large bill from them because they were part of your care. You know your hospital's contracted. You know your doctor's contracted. You have no idea who these other doctors are or if they're contracted or not. Typically, these um, these protections uh, allow you to continue to receive in-network levels of benefits for these providers in those situations. Yeah, the and, part and that's, that's really the part that's not done. However, okay, um, is they haven't quite figured out this negotiation on what we're going to actually pay that provider. There's supposed to be some sort of arbitration system set up. And so far, I've not seen that work. But I do think it's fair for the, the, the medical community to demand more answers on how they're going to be fairly cons- uh, uh, compensated if the member is going to be protected by regulations, why isn't the provider protected? I think that's a legitimate right. question. Well, I, th- I think transparency would be a great thing. So, you know, oh, you're getting this knee surgery? Give me on a one sheet every cost that I can anticipate. My radiologist, my anesthesiologist, the nurses, the hospital, the doctors, y- you know, that could be sticker shock to some people. But I think in order to avoid lawsuits and collection agencies, I personally, as a consumer, would love to know, you know, okay, if I'm going in either for, um, you know, emergency medical surgery or it's um, uh, another kind of medical procedure that I have a a good understanding. It's almost like um, not buyer beware, but a buyer disclaimer saying, okay, you're you're no you're you've been. Um, given the information in advance so that you know what you're buying. So you don't get that sticker shock, but, but that's really what we're, we're talking about though is for the employees. And that's, and as much as my listeners appreciate that, um, you know, as the employer, and again, it all comes back to the employer because all of a sudden your employee gets hit with a $15,000 bill. They're not going to be very productive on Monday in the office. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all over the place. There are um, there are situations, the situation where the consumer protections are in place are more for where they truly didn't know they were surprised out of network yeah. charges yeah. versus I'm knowingly going out of network. And frankly, most of the out of network providers having been burned by this process, make sure their patients understand the potential financial obligation before they administer the care. Right. Okay. All right. Last, last question for today, but you, you, you promise you're going to come back on, right? I will promise. I will come back on. All right. If you will have me, I'm getting, you're going to come back on probably before June, because I want to talk about the whole mental aspects, mental health aspects of group insurance and what that entails. Um, HSAs. So let's talk about them because that seems to be like one of the greatest opportunities for businesses of all sizes. And it seems to be an underutilized offer, correct? Yeah. So let's just make sure your listeners really understand why HSAs exist. (laughs) I said earlier that there are different perspectives where depending where you line up politically on how we try to attempt to deal with um, healthcare costs and access. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the Republicans uh, came up with this concept of savings accounts. It started with something called MSAs, which were for individual health insurance contracts. And early on, tax optimizers like doctors, lawyers, and accountants um, gobbled these things up. And then the, uh, the, the first Bush administration, I believe, floated the idea of group MSAs, which became health savings accounts. Right. So um, I have a lot of thoughts on health savings accounts, but uh, what the government was trying to do was create tax incentives for employees to be smart consumers of healthcare um, and to save and look at healthcare expenditures and your risk and your liability for healthcare costs over time to, to look at them over time, mm-hmm. as opposed to what we all kind of get sucked into. And that is an annual enrollment mentality uh, where every year, you choose your health plan uh, from some employers offer multiple plans. Some only offer one plan, but it's kind of a once a year decision. I'm going to be in this plan or that plan. Um, So one of the biggest mistakes I think uh, advisors make when talking about HSAs is they jump to the conclusion that HSAs are for young, healthy people. Right because they have high deductibles and high out-of-pocket costs. And that's just incorrect. Um, The reason the high deductibles are there and the reason the high out-of-pocket maximums are there is so that employees have some blood in the game when they enter the healthcare marketplace to when they turn into a consumer. We're not talking about by the time they get to be a patient. Mm-hmm. When they're laying in bed, we're talking about having the uh, forethought to understand I need to plan for the best way to have money to cover my costs before I need the money. Okay. So if I have the right incentives, if I have a, a, a $3,000 deductible, for example, and I know I need an MRI because my doctor said I need an MRI, um, do I know? If I had a, a $15 copay or a $25 copay, I really wouldn't care where that MRI was delivered. Mm-hmm. This is costing me $15 or $25 or $50 or $100. Right. right. It doesn't matter. The reality of the variability in costs of many medical procedures, and in this case, high cost imagery, the price variability in a small geography is amazing. And back to the the MRI, a typical tertiary care university uh, hospital will charge anywhere between two and three thousand dollars when your doctor says, do me a favor, stop in and get an MRI on your way up to visit my office at the hospital. Right. And most people like lemmings go in and and get it Um, if they're paying twenty five, thirty, fifty dollars for the episode. They could care less if there's a seven hundred dollar option available. Right. Mm hmm. Now, I will tell you, representing employers, your employer cares because if they use the university medical center, their claim is going to be $2,500. And if they use the local radiology center on the corner, it's going to be $750. Huge variability. Yeah. Now, if I have a $3,000 deductible, I care because we're spending my money. 
And if my employer took the time to educate me and to provide me tools about relative cost and quality of certain elective surge, uh, services in my geography, <clears throat> I'd be a smarter consumer. So back to HSAs. Part of having an HSA, the government has said, we're going to allow you to set up this financial account, but you can only deposit money into it and get the tax credits if you're enrolled in what we define as a high deductible health plan. And so the federal government has a definition of what is actually a high deductible health plan. They mm -hmm. cannot have co-pays. They cannot have first dollar coverages. They want employees to exhibit consumerism and to um, have, quote unquote, you know, a little bit of blood in the game when they, they, they go shopping. Mm -hmm. the big, uh, another mistake we tend to make is we use the term uh, HSA and benefit plans synonymously. Right. They are not. Okay. The HSA is an IRA for healthcare. It is a financial facility. It needs to be, in my experience, when I took the time to have separate education sessions around HSAs and I dedicated one hour to the financial advantages of being in an HSA, the, the, the tax credits associated with a health savings account, the long-term nature of a health savings account, the investment opportunities in an HSA account. And I didn't talk about $2,000 deductibles and no RX copay and $8,000 out-of-pocket maximums. When I separated those conversations, the enrollment in the HSA tripled. When it was part of an enrollment decision, a this or that decision, mm -hmm. people just look at the benefits and they tend to choose the richer benefits. Now, do you have any questions about that? I know I went over a lot in a short period of time. No, it's it's enlightening. It, it really is. Um, all right, like I said, when we when we're done with this podcast, I'm getting on your calendar. You're coming back in May, and we're gonna we're gonna do this. I think because given how much of an expense it is, and given how much of a black hole it can be for employers, the reason that I first reached out to you is because in my conversations with business owners in New Jersey, you know, I said, tell me the thing, the, the areas of your business where you need the most guidance. And, you know, social media, believe it or not, was probably number one. They just have no idea how that works. But, but health insurance and benefit plans were number, it was number two. They just said, you know, it's just, it's so frustrating because, but they don't take the time, I think, to talk to people like you where they should, you know, where they, they need to be more proactive and less reactive. In yeah, I think you're right. There's no box uh, yeah. in, in, in an org structure to understand the, the, the really technical nature of, of, of purchasing this. You, you really stand no chance as a mid-market employer against an insurance company. You know, I, I right. liken it to, you know, a casino. It, it, it's, it's there. Um, it's, the house uh, always wins. It's going to win. And, you know, I, I, I'll use the analogy. I mean, you need a card counter. Yeah. You, you need to fight back. You need a worthy adversary. They are carnivores. They bite. And uh, if you don't protect yourself, you are not going to get the best deal. So you're my card counter, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love it, Oz, card counter. Yes. Yeah. Everybody needs a, everybody needs a card counter. All right. So if people have questions and they want to reach out to you, and I know people are going to have questions. What's the best way that they can connect with you? Well, probably the easiest way is through LinkedIn. 
you know, okay. send me a connection or you could uh, give me a tweet at at Ray Bashio. All right. Uh, I'll put all that on the resource page. I'll put your I'll put your social media handles and your website and all that on. And and my email email address. You have that. Excellent. So, yeah, that's probably the best way. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, introduce myself and you'll have a a person for a second opinion. If you have any questions that come up. Yeah. You know what I liken this to? I liken it to, you know, somebody who's never driven a car before and you hand them the keys you know, into an expensive new car and you go, okay, good luck. And you don't know how anything works. Yeah. Well, this this, this stuff's gotten so expensive and I think typically not unusual, especially for smaller companies, you know, there's, they, they tend to let their structure drive their strategy Mm -hmm. and um, there's really no structure to account for this. And if they've always let the HR person make a decision or they've always let the CFO or the HR or the, the CEO or the owner has a friend who is this transactional broker who can place my insurance, you know, it, it kind of works for them without a burning platform. They don't know what they're missing. Yeah. So, you know, we, 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 we love talking to companies like that because we open up the contract. Uh, I said it to you in one of our uh, conversations at another time, transparency is the best disinfected unless you're really able technically and you have the bandwidth to open up a contract, look at every single component part, you are never going to get the best pricing. Um, so that's what we do. All right, Ray. Thank you. Thank Brian, you. Brian, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate the education. I know my, my listeners do. And, uh, and we're going to have you back. All right. Look forward to it. All right. Uh, to everyone, you've been listening to the Small Business Edge podcast. My guest today was Ray Bashio, Senior Vice President at USI Insurance Services, and somebody who has spent the last 36 years in the healthcare insurance industry, and uh, he has given us all quite an education today. Keep your feedback coming, your questions, your comments. I appreciate them, and uh, we'll do our best to answer all the questions and to give you the topics and the guests that you are asking for. Until then, everybody, have a great day and stay safe. You've been listening to the Small Business Edge podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Please visit our website, smallbusinessedge.com, for a listing of future podcasts.